Hebrews chapter 6, beginning today at verse 16. Hebrews 6, verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, we have been considering this chapter uh, for many weeks, and we know, again, looking at the forest, and then we'll look at the trees of these individual verses, but the forest of this chapter is this, that the author of Hebrews is seeking to pastorally warn and admonish a congregation that is tempted to backslide, even to turn away from the Lord altogether. Now, one might think theologically, why would the Bible give such warnings? Has the Bible not understood that once God regenerates somebody, he will see to it that he brings that person to glory? Well, of course, yes, that is true. In Romans chapter 8, we find what we call the golden chain of salvation, that uh, those who are uh, effectually called are justified, and those who are justified are sanctified, and those who are sanctified are glorified. That is true. Or to put it in the way of the words of Paul in Philippians, that he who has begun a good work in you will what? He will complete it to the day of redemption. So yes, of course, the author of Hebrews is aware of Calvinism. (laughs) He is aware that God's sovereign work in the soul, uh, causing Uh, someone to be born again of the Spirit of God will always lead to a future glorification. Inevitably. So why then do we have this chapter? Because God who executes and decrees the end of all things, even your glory, is the God who by His Spirit inspires pastoral warnings in the Scripture that says, you who think you are strong, You take heed lest you fall, that you who are in Christ Jesus, make sure that you persevere, make sure that you continue to bear good fruit. Don't be, as the author of Hebrews says earlier in this chapter, don't be as that barren field, boys and girls. You remember the two fields, boys and girls, that we talked about a couple weeks ago? One field has lots of fruit and vegetables and crops in it. And the other field is barren. It only has thorns and thistles. There's nothing productive coming from that field. 
And so the author of Hebrews is saying that you need to be fruitful. You and I need to be fruitful. We need to be filled with the Spirit, bearing fruit of the Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ, not to be backsliding. Because any branch, Jesus said, in his tree that does not continue to bear fruit, what happens to it? It gets cut off. And it's good for nothing but what? A nice fall fire, right? What kind of branches do you kids gather up when you go camping this fall? Or when you have an outdoor campfire? Well, you gather up the ones that are on the ground, don't you? You gather up the ones that are already dead and barren, right? You don't climb the tree and cut a branch, a fresh green one, and throw it on. You get, you get the wood that's already dead and on the ground. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be as that, that dead limb that is just lying there, doing nothing, but be full of sap, green and fruitful. You know, Paul warned us in Romans as Gentiles. He said, you know, you and I as Gentiles, and I'm assuming I'm speaking here to people who ethnically are Gentiles here, we have been engrafted into the tree of Israel. Did you know that? This is the tree that is of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we who were wild olive plants, we who were not part of that tree before Christ came, we have been engrafted into the tree. But how did we get engrafted? Because God in his providence cut off some branches, Paul said, that were dead and barren. And he glued us into those spots. And he said, now you listen, Gentiles. He says, don't you get proud. Don't you become proud and arrogant against the tree. Remember, the grace that was shown to you was shown to them. And if they did not prove faithful and persevering under that grace, how much more you, who isn't natural to the tree to begin with, will you be cut off? And so even there, Paul gives up another warning to persevere as believers that we as Gentiles who were not a part of the covenant to begin with but have been engrafted by grace through the Spirit, listen, if God was willing to cut off the natural branches, how much more those branches that have been glued in? Meaning that we have all the more reason to continue steadfastly in the Lord. So this chapter is a pastoral warning. It's not here to shake you uh, from your faith. Okay, Now, you might be shaken a little, but that might be a good thing. But it is not to lead you to despair. This chapter is not supposed to lead you into some kind of introspective spiral that you can't get out of, some kind of deep well that you are left in darkness with no hope. No. What does the author say here? He says, we have better hope for you. We have better, so that while I'm warning you, says the author, uh, while I'm warning you, I am also encouraging you, I'm coming alongside of you, and I, and I am saying to you, I know that you will persevere. I know that you will take this admonition for what it is, not as a, a means of trying to trip you up and cause you to fall down a dark well, but rather that you will say, you're right, I need to be careful. I'm not as strong as I think I am. I'm not as mature as I sometimes want to pretend that I am. 
I do find myself going the wrong way. Remember what the end of Psalm 119 says. He praises God and he praises the law of God. But then what, how does this, that whole Psalm 119 end? Lord, help me, for I am a sheep that goes astray. I love your law, O oh God, but there's a problem that I still have within me these workings that want me to go in a direction that you have forbidden, that want me to go in a way that is contrary to your commandments. So, oh Lord, while I love your law, help me. Isn't that what Paul expresses in Romans 7 as well? When he describes the, 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 the problem that we have as Christians is that we have at work within us these two things. One is the Spirit of God within us where we say that I delight in the law of God, but at the same time I find within myself another principle, he says, at war against me. The sin nature, I do the very things I hate, he says. So we all need warning. We all need to be admonished so that we would be faithful, that we would persevere. Yes, God has ordained. If he has elected you and he has chosen you and he has called you and he's justified you and he's sanctifying you, you will be glorified. But you also need to take warning. The person who will be glorified is the person who takes these warnings to heart and will be faithful receiving them. Now, what does the author of Hebrews do do next. Now, remember, I didn't finish last Sunday's sermon. And there were two parts, and I only got to one of them. What the author of Hebrews told us to do, in a very pastoral way, every good preacher brings home the application, and he says, this is how I want you to persevere. One of the ways I want you to persevere. I want you to imitate those who love Jesus Christ. I want you to imitate the faithful of the Lord who have gone before us, and he illustrates this particularly with who? Abraham. And he says, Here's a, here is a man who knew what it was to persevere. Here's a man who was called by God, chosen by God, born again of the Spirit of God, who believed on God and his promises. But I don't want you young people to think Abraham had an easy life. I want you young people to understand Abraham really did a lot of suffering. This is a man who knew what trials and temptations were all about. This is a man who had to trust God despite everything he saw in his life. He was given the promise of God that he would have the land in which he was dwelling as a stranger. He didn't own any of it. He's going to buy a little grave plot later, but doesn't own an inch of land. He has no natural heirs. Uh, he, he has an elderly body. He has an elderly wife. And yet God comes and he says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abraham believes that promise and thereby is a type of believer that we are called to imitate, Paul says. If you look in the text here, what does he say? Um, he said, for verse 13, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. 
This was a man who had no child. Now, even when God gave Abraham and Sarah that child by way of promise, remember, they, for a, a, a brief moment, failed uh, to believe that promise and, and instead thought, well, maybe God wants us to fulfill this promise by way of Hagar. And that was not the solution. That was not the way God intended for the promise to be fulfilled. And, and so the, the, the child of the bondwoman was not the way that they were to go, but it was by God's grace and power through Sarah that the promise was to be realized. Abraham was an immigrant. He was a stranger. He was a wanderer. He had no land. He had no children until Isaac was given to him. And then, even then, Isaac was, was called to be put on the altar. Abraham, I want you to go to Mount Moriah. And I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham and Isaac are walking and Isaac perceptive young man that he is. He says, Dad, I see the knife. I see the fire. I see the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham prophetically says what? God will provide the sacrifice, pointing us to Jesus Christ. And so Abraham stretches Isaac out over the altar, and as he's about to sacrifice his own son, the Lord calls him to stop and, and blesses him. And in chapter 22, and it's in chapter 22, it's at that chapter that the author of Hebrews picks up here and he's expounding really Genesis chapter 22. The latter part of Hebrews 6 is an exposition of Genesis 22. And notice what he says in verse 15. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And the point is this, if Abraham had to wait for the promise, even that it was not fully realized in his own lifetime. Remember that the promise was going to be realized later in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. Now, Abraham, boys and girls, so you know, lived about 2,000 years before Jesus. That's a long time. That's as far away as we are to Jesus. And yet Jesus said, Abraham, look to my day, and he rejoiced in it. Abraham had to patiently wait. Part of persevering in the Christian faith is learning to wait on God and on God's timing. God's timetable is not ours. One of the problems that G.I., excuse me, J.I., someone said G.I. Williamson, J.I. Packer, all these initials, J.I. Packer said, you know, speaking of the theonomists um, who, you know, want to make the civil law of the old covenant mandatory for the nations today, J.I. Packer's had a very short critique. He said, they are impatient. They are impatient. Our charismatic brethren who have a health, wealth, gospel, I would argue, suffer from a similar problem. They are impatient. They believe that you should have it all now. If you just but exercise enough faith, you will have everything now. 
But even, what does the author of Hebrews say? Even Abraham, who was given these great promises by God, did not have it. That even when he dies, he is still looking to Christ in faith, not realizing that he has the land, not realizing yet that he's going to be given far more. He's going to be given the new heavens and the new earth, for even the land was but a typological promise of the consummated glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham. And so here the author of Hebrews is saying that while Abraham suffered all these things, he nevertheless never wavered ultimately in his faith of God, in his faith in God. The patriarchs, Calvin in his institutes, does this wonderful section. If you get a chance, I think it's in book two of Calvin's four books. It's usually in two volumes, but each volume, there's about two books in each volume. And in in book two, Calvin talks about the patriarchs. And he talks about the sufferings. When When you go through the biographies of these men in Genesis, you realize that these men had very difficult lives. Jacob was right when he said that my years have been hard and short. And all the struggles that Abraham went through and Isaac and Jacob. And yet all of these men, by the grace of God, persevered, testifying to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our passage is saying that not only do you look to Abraham, but you are to look to Abraham's God. Because this is what Abraham himself did. Abraham is a model for us. Now, what, what is it that the author of Hebrews says about God that we should particularly look to? And here's where we get to verses 16 and following. And that is this, that the God of Abraham did what? He made a promise to Abraham, and then he backed up that promise by making, or taking, I should say, an oath. Notice here that Uh, There are in verse 18, it says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. What are you supposed to get strong encouragement? You are to have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Who is that hope? That hope, I will show you, is Jesus Christ. But what I want you to first see is this. That as we look to the God of Abraham, the author here says that there are two unchangeable things. And the commentators, I think, say that one is the promise and the other is the oath. God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many, even though you are childless. And then the oath that is spoken of in chapter 22, where God swears that all which formerly was promised to Abraham will be yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, why two things? Some believe that it is serving as almost two witnesses here. that God by his promise and then by an oath. Notice here that the author of Hebrews talks a little bit about the nature of the oath. Look at verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves with an oath given as confirmation 
is an end of every dispute. Now, boys and girls, what is an oath? Do you know what an oath is? Maybe you've seen a TV show where there's a courtroom drama taking place and they have to take uh, an oath. Or maybe you, how many of you kids, have you ever seen a, a presidential inauguration? Did you ever watch one of those? And when we inaugurate a president, what does he do? He stands up in front of all the people and the chief justice of the Supreme Court comes before him. And then the wife of the president stretches out the Holy Bible. And the president puts his left hand on the Bible. And he raises up his right hand, doesn't he? Like this. And then the uh, chief justice administers what we call the oath of office. Whereby the president swears before God that he will, to the best of his ability, protect, preserve, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the shorthand of it. What's, what is that moment there? That moment, when somebody takes an oath, they are taking a public pledge before God to witness to the veracity of what they are saying. So notice here it says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. That is, if, if things can, cannot be settled out of court, what happens? You go to trial, right? If there's a disagreement between two parties, the, agree, the disagreement can't be settled. You take the matter to the civil magistrate, and under oath, you give depositions, okay? You, you, you give testimony under oath. That settles the matter. That, that, is, that is as high as we can go in this life, is to swear before an omniscient and omnipresent God and let God in his providence deal with the ramifications of that oath. And then we have to leave it there. Uh, until the judgment day. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, and this is so uh, really remarkable, is that congregation, God himself bound himself by himself with an oath. You know, R.C. Sproul has said, that God cannot appeal to anybody higher than himself. The highest place God himself can go to back up his own testimony is his own being and his own attributes. You know, an oath is never to be taken lightly. Remember, Jesus said, make no oath at all. Now, when he said that, he wasn't meaning that we should not have oaths for office or oaths in a courtroom. But what had happened, what Jesus was uh, militating against was this practice that had crept into Judaism, whereby people were swearing in their ordinary conversation. I swear by the temple. I swear by the gold on the temple. And Jesus says, you fool. You know, what is greater? You know, if you swear by the gold on the temple, well, then, you know, you're bound. If you only swear by the temple, you're not bound. 
And, and what sanctifies what, Jesus said? It's the temple that sanctifies the gold on the temple. But his point was, in ordinary conversation, make no oath at all. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That is, oaths are to be reserved for the most extraordinary of circumstances. And the author of Hebrews is saying that this promise to Abraham is such an extraordinary event that it was right and good that God should back up that promise with an oath to Abraham. So significant is this promise to Abraham for not just Abraham's sake, but notice here, for your sake. Notice what it says here in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, who is the we? Meaning the, the believers, the Christians who have believed on Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the one whom Abraham rejoiced in, though he only saw Jesus from a distance 2,000 years beforehand. He says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. That is this, that, this, that Genesis chapter 22 is given to you to encourage you to persevere in Jesus Christ. That's the point, that you would be encouraged that if God has sworn, God in no way, being a God who cannot lie, for whom it is impossible to lie, he will see to it that he brings it to pass. These promises of salvation to Abraham and Abraham's children. And who are Abraham's children? Abraham's children, we are told in Galatians, is everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, the moment you trust in Jesus Christ, you become a child of Abraham. You become a child of Abraham and Sarah. You are a child of promise. You are, you, is God, as God wrought a miracle in Sarah's womb, God one day would bring another, even greater, in sending of his only begotten son to be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. And born of her yet without sin that he might die for you on the cross, you and I are to take encouragement in that. The word of God is inviolable. It cannot be broken. God in his nature cannot lie. Jesus Christ, therefore, you are to see is the yes and the amen of this promise to Abraham. Now, what you need to understand, though, is this, that, not, that while Christ is the yes and amen of everything God had sworn to, to Abraham, not all that Jesus has done has been yet fully realized and consummated. That is, there is a sense, historically, we, even in Christ, have to persevere, though we have seen the answer to Abraham and the promise that was made to him. Nevertheless, there are still, as I said last week, there are still outstanding implications for the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, but he has not yet consummated his kingdom. Jesus has truly fulfilled uh, the promise of Abraham. But even that which has been fulfilled is not yet 
brought to its fullest fruition. It is not, we are not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. It is coming and it is being worked out. We are in that now and not yet. We are in that, if you will, that developmental stage, that embryonic stage. The kingdom of God is present. It is not just out there future from our perspective. It is present here. You are in the kingdom of God right now as we gather in the name of Jesus Christ in this room. The kingdom of God is here. It is among us. God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham by engrafting us, sanctifying us, making us fruitful, and saying, look, Abraham, look at these children in LaGrange I have for you. I have given you children that you never knew. 4,000 years later than your life in a little Georgia town. And I'm doing that everywhere, Abraham. I'm doing that in every country. I'm doing that in every little remote island in the world. I am building my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. I, Christ, will prevail. I, Christ, will be king over the new heavens and new earth. But we must be patient. We must wait. We must pray. We must work. We must cry. We must still fast. We must give ourselves to prayer. We must still sit under the means of grace. We must still work at our sanctification. There's no realization of full sanctification in this life. There's a lot still that has to be done. But what does the author of Hebrews say? He wants you to be encouraged, though, while he warns you. I want to encourage you, he says. Take hold of the hope set before you. This promise sealed with an oath is Jesus Christ, and Christ is set before you. Don't leave Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the ceremonial laws. Don't go back to the shadows and the types of the Old Testament. He's warning these Hebraic Christians, but lay hold of Christ and do not let him go. Keep persevering in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope of the world, and there is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved. Look at verse here, verse 19, he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Notice here, boys and girls, that the author is comparing Jesus to an anchor. Now, do you know what an anchor is? An anchor for very young children here. An anchor is a big piece of metal, and it's got some sharp uh, points on both sides and sometimes on the third. And when people were at sea, uh, sometimes they would lower the anchor to hold them in place. Now, they didn't have the engines on the boats in those days. And so they would put the boat somewhere and they would drop down the anchor and it would secure the boat. Now, why was this important? Well, as you know, Water and wind has a way of moving things, right? You, you put maybe a toy boat on the water and on the lake, and what happens? The wind and the water, they begin to move the toy boat down. So what do you do to keep a real boat from moving? Well, you put an anchor down. I haven't let, let my dad live it down. <laughs> One time we were putting anchor out on our boat, and dad did a backswing and got me in the forehead. 
just one of many Miller episodes on the, don't go boating with the Millers, just, just don't. Let me tell you, don't. <laughs> we, we laugh about it now. But um, the anchor is heavy, um, and, and it, it, it is supposed to be heavy so that the boat doesn't go anywhere. Well, here, what the author is saying is that Jesus Christ is the anchor in your heart. Jesus Christ is the one who keeps you from moving away from God. You see, the Christian life is like a boat in the water. And we, we need to be careful, though, because if we don't have this anchor, we will move and drift. And what happens to churches that lose Jesus Christ and are not preaching Christ, and are not preaching the divinity of Christ, and the deity of Christ, and not preaching the miracles of Christ, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any church, any denomination that begins to preach less than the true Jesus Christ, what they essentially are doing is pulling up anchor. And we should not be surprised that those are the churches and the denominations that begin to drift with the culture. When you pull Jesus up out of your heart, out of the life of your church and out of your denomination, and you begin to preach moralism, and you begin to preach, here's how I'm going to make you a good person, and I'm going to give you all these exhortations to do good things, and you don't set before the congregation the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ primarily, then what happens is, is that you begin to go with whatever is the normative for your culture. And so if your culture moves away from the command, thou shalt not kill, that denomination begins to embrace abortion. And when that culture thinks it's okay to uh, easy divorce, and then the church says, okay, we'll go along with easy divorce. You're tired of your spouse. You're, 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 you, know, you have a few complaints, but there are no biblical grounds. That's okay. You can still divorce them. Um, the culture is saying we think same-sex marriage is okay, even though the Bible says that such relationship is called an abomination. Well, well, we will choose to go with the culture rather than what the Bible says. And why is this happening? Because they lost Jesus long ago. You see, what goes on today really has its origins at least 100 years ago in this country. The things which we are seeing culturally uh, today are because 100 years ago, we were debating these issues as to whether Jesus is really truly the son of God or not. Can you be a Christian and not believe in the bodily resurrection? And you had a number of Presbyterian ministers who were saying they think it was fine to deny the bodily resurrection. They pulled the anchor up 100 years ago. And those churches and those denominations are, are just drifting with the culture. And, you know, when, whatever the next thing coming down the pike, that's what they'll embrace as well. Um. We don't know what it is. I, I, you know, Carl Truman even this week said now that one of the latest things is euthanasia for people who are depressed, chronically depressed. You know, how long until the church says that's okay with them too? We, we'll, we'll, euthanasia is fine. Well, they have no anchor. They're just going to drift right along. Let me bring it to a close. 
You and I are sitting here this morning because of the promise and the oath of God to Abraham. The reason there's a church in LaGrange, Georgia today is because God is faithful to what he promised. That promise was realized in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is building his church even here. You should be encouraged that you are an answer to Abraham's prayer and you are the fulfillment of a promise that was given to Abraham by God. That promise is realized in your Savior. You are united to the Savior. And also, secondly, as I said earlier, it also means that you and I are going to have to learn to be patient if we are really going to persevere. Perseverance is not easy. Perseverance takes a lot of work and time. And we need to be patient even as Abraham was patient.